morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who may not know, my name is Ephraim Rosario. I'm the youth minister here at Discover Christian Church. And uh, we've been, we started this series called Basic Instructions. We're working through our We Believe statements. And uh, we're going to continue that today. But before we go on, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll go ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to be in your house uh, as a family, uh, just be able to worship you and, and just bring honor and glory to you. And I just pray, let it uh, continue during this next time of teaching, Lord, that, that everything that is said be your words, uh, not mine, and that everything will bring you honor and glory that uh, continues to happen through the rest of this service, Lord. And I just thank you again just for the awesome opportunity and privilege that we have uh, to even come together before your presence. It's your name I pray. Amen. So as we are saying, we... Uh, We've been in this, in this series, and we heard our, our next two uh, We Believe statements. And all have sinned and, and deserve eternal separation from God, and Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God who led a sinless life, was crucified, and was raised to life. Now, these are two things that probably no matter where, whatever church you go to or visit or whatever it may be, are you going to see these two things? And if they're a Bible-believing church and believe in Jesus Christ, this is what you're going to see. And so there's something that almost gets just overlooked or maybe just not necessarily overlooked, but more just like, okay, we know this. We know we all have sinned. We all know we need Jesus. But I think that if we really dig into deeper into these two things, we'll have a better understanding and we'll have a better outlook on our life and our Christian walk if we really dig into it more and understand our sin and understand what Jesus actually did for us. So when we look at that first part, that all have sinned, this is a hard topic. This is hard because we don't like to talk about sin. Because when we talk about sin or try to call out sin or whatever, we get labeled as judgmental. Or it just creates conflict. And we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to really have to talk about it. But the fact is, is it's a fact. We all have sinned. We see this in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we see that, it just it makes it plain and simple. Everyone, everyone that has ever lived has sinned, and it doesn't live up to God's standards. And from the second that we break one single commandment, we have broken all the commandments of God. And because of that, that is why we can't be with him. This is why we deserve eternal separation. We, we deserve eternal damnation because we can't be with him as long as we have sin. Because God is holy, and we are not, especially when we sin. So when we think about this, it's like, well, wait, how does that actually work? Because even Jesus says this. He says if you, if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking all of it. But how does that actually work? I mean, aren't there a bunch of different laws? Aren't there a bunch of different things that we're supposed to follow? Like, how is breaking one breaking all of them? Well, John tells us this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And see, and John brings this up. He's like, no, here are the things that the world loves. And pretty much all sin can be brought down to those three things. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Now, when we see something, we're just like, ooh, I got to have it. Or our body has a craving. That's the lust of the flesh. And we're like, man, I need to satisfy that. Or the pride of life where we're thinking, I can get this figured out. Look at everything I have done. And I know we may think even that. It's like, well, that's, that seems like, a, like those three things covers everything. Is that really the case? 
But we can actually see that even within the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, let's just read through that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So there's the commandment. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So we see here from this original sin, which we a lot of times talk about it in like the singular term. I mean, yeah, one commandment was broken, but they broke it in three different ways. There were three different issues that led to that breaking of the commandment. They already had sin crouching at their door because they're like, mm, it looks good to eat. It's going to be good for food. And I can be as wise as God. Through those three things, the main problem that we see is that they were being selfish. They were only thinking of themselves. They weren't thinking what God commanded and that God wanted what was best for them. No, they were thinking, look how this is going to benefit me. So when we have the, the, the lust of the eyes and flesh and the pride of life, that's the thing. All sin may be encapsulated in that, and all sin can be encapsulated in one word, selfishness. But when we sin, we're thinking only of ourselves and thinking of only gratifying ourselves. But what's crazy about it is if you look at God's laws, if you look at the Ten Commandments, if you look at what we have on here, love God, love people, that Jesus says all the laws and the prophets are summed up in those two things. What we don't see is ourselves. We see love God, then love people. And then at that point, that puts us in third place. Because if you think about it, I mean, look at the Ten Commandments. The first four, about how we love God. The last six, how we love other people. Again, nowhere in there talks about us. Talks about gratifying ourselves. We have God first, we have other people, and then everything else will follow. Again, we were in that third place. So when we talk about this, we have to come to grips with the fact that when we sin, we are putting ourselves before God. We are, we are saying that, you know, God, your way doesn't really work for me. I think I got a better plan. I can work this out much better on my own, God. I don't need you. And that's huge. I mean, that's crazy to think about that when we actually do these things, that's what we're actually saying. I mean, we even see that in the Old Testament. When Israel is crying out to Samuel and to God, essentially saying, we want a king. Look at all these nations around us. They all have kings. Why don't we have a king? And God's like, I'm your king. I'm the one you're supposed to follow. I'm, I'm all you need. And they're like, no, we don't want you, God. We want a human king. God said, you're not going to like it. It's going to be terrible. Whatever, God, that's what you say. We want our king. So they get Saul, and it was a train wreck. It was a complete train wreck when they had Saul. Fast forward, and we see the same thing with Solomon, who actually, you know, we talk a lot about his, at the beginning, where he made the right decision when God said, whatever you want, you can have it. And Solomon said, give me your wisdom. All right, excellent job, Solomon. Way not to think of yourself, good job. But then he 
he gets off track because with this wisdom, he, he amounts a lot of wealth, a lot of fame, and he starts, you know, marrying different women from different nations, and he starts getting all this different wisdom coming in or, you know, human wisdom. So he starts thinking, look at everything I've done. Look at everything I have brought. Look at my grand kingdom. Look at all this knowledge that I have from all over the world. And he completely loses track of what he knew at the very beginning, which is he needed God and he needed his wisdom to rule. And so because of that, idolatry comes into the kingdom of Israel, and which ultimately leads to the kingdom being divided, which then leads to each kingdom being taken in captivity. But that's one thing Solomon didn't think about. The same thing that we struggle with with our sin is when we want to gratify ourselves in such ways, we're not thinking about consequences that other people are going to be dealing with. We're not thinking about the consequences we're going to have to be dealing with. We're only thinking, this is what I want. This is what I need right now. Forget God. Forget his plan. This is what I want. So this becomes a little bit bigger when we start looking at it because it is idolatry because we're putting ourselves before God. So this is a huge problem. Because we know we're doing this over and over and over again. This is why we can't be with him. Because that's what we continue to choose. And then probably some of the most amazing, like two words in scripture, especially when they put together, but God. But God said, I'm not going to let this fly. Even though that's how we sin, we do it every day, we spit in his face, we say, I don't need you. God still said, I have a plan. God wasn't going to let it happen. He's, he's, he said, I, I'm not going to be without my children for all eternity. I'm going to fix this. And it's the greatest and purest and most perfect example of love that we'll ever see. This love from our Savior, Jesus Christ, will forever be the greatest love story ever told because of the things that he went through so we can be with him. It's things that you'll never hear ever again or see demonstrated any better in the way Jesus demonstrated it. But this is where we get to that second part of the we believe statement that he sent his son, he died and crucified it because of his love. Like, do we really grasp how much love that really is? How much Jesus actually loves us? I mean, we just talked about our sin. We talked about the seriousness of that sin and what we do. So do we really understand it? Because we, we, we know John three sixteen, right? We quote it all the time. For God so loved the world that whoever, uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We teach our kids, Jesus loves me. We sing songs like How He Loves. We sung songs today about love. We're going to continue singing a song about love. We do this all the time. Are we sure we're not really numb to it? Because this love is huge, and in fact, is we are commanded to love. We see it again and again. Again, it's on our wall. We see it in Scripture. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, we do talk about this verse, and Jesus says, you know, we are commanded, commanded, not suggested, commanded to love, but not just love, love as Jesus did. Well, what does that look like? Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about uh, how spouses should relate to each other. And he says this, 5 verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Well, he gives us the insight and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up. We also see that Jesus says, no, no other greater love does a man have than to be laid his life down for a friend. Now, people will want to take that verse and say, oh, well, that's just figuratively, like if you just put them before you. But no, if we're looking at this from a full scripture perspective, we're commanded to love like Jesus loved. No, that's actually laying down your life. I mean, if you actually lay down your life so someone, for someone else, no one's going to deny how much you, you love that person. And we see here, I mean, husbands, I'm guilty of this. I'm, I'm probably just as terrible, if not worse, than most of you. But think about it. If we're willing to die for our wives and we live that out every single day, how many arguments are we going to get into? Not very many. But that's what we're commanded. We're commanded to love like that, that you know what? We don't even care about our own lives because that's how Jesus loved the church. And it's usually at this point where people start thinking, okay, well, Ephraim, I hear what you're saying, but you don't know my past. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I'm currently struggling with that I'm hiding because I don't want anyone to know because I still want to be a Christian, but I'm hiding it because I don't want anyone to know. You don't know what I'm struggling with. How can Jesus still really love me? I'm sure there's still things that I need to fix, that I need to work out. I'm really not deserving of this at the moment. And I'm here to tell you that is a load of hot garbage. That is just Satan putting it in your head, kicking you while you're down, over and over telling you you're not worth it, you're a piece of trash, you're the worst, and you never deserve Jesus. That's what he wants you to think. He doesn't want to get you any closer to Christ. He doesn't want you to grow in him. He just wants to keep beating you down over and over and over. And if we don't really understand how much Jesus loves us, he keeps winning. This is why we meet every single Sunday to celebrate what he did. It's why we take communion to remember and to celebrate what he did. Because the fact is, Jesus already took care of everything. He said, come to me. Salvation is free. I can take care of everything. It's the point of the gospel. We don't need to fix ourselves. We don't need to continue to be like, okay, well, let me work on it, and then I'll give my life to Christ. Or, you know, I really want to get serious with my faith, but let me continue to work some things out, get rid of some sins, get more control of, of what's going on, and then I'll give it to God. But that's not how it's worked. That's not what we see in Scripture. Throughout the book of Acts and the history of the church, what we constantly see is the gospel being preached, the people respond, and they immediately go to him. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the first sermon. And their response is, what do we need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 that day were added. When Philip and others go to Samaria, they're preaching the gospel. And it says that people are just giving their lives to Christ instantly. Let's go. I want to be a part of it. Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he teaches him the gospel. And they come across some water. And he's like, now's the time. There's water. Why not? Let's go. There's, no, there's none of this time of, let me fix something. No, you hear the gospel, you respond to it, you give your life to him. That's how the gospel is supposed to work. We're the ones that get in the way and let Satan get in the way and say, mm, I don't know. I don't know if, if we can really do this. Well, maybe we need to break down what Jesus actually did for us. 
Because if we break down and we actually see what Jesus went through for us, it should eliminate all doubt in our minds. So we're going to fast forward a little bit into his life and just skip right to the weekend that it's all going down. We're going to start in the garden. When he is in there, he's praying, and he knows what's about to happen. Jesus, Jesus can see it. He knows the pain he's about to go through. He knows he's about to die. And he is just so stressed out that he is sweating blood. Now, this is another one of those verses where people are like, well, this is a figurative term. This is just, they're just trying to show how stressed out Jesus was. Now, I'm no doctor. Doctors in the house, I mean, please don't make fun of me for butchering this. But the, the term is, called, best I can, is called hematidrosis. It's an actual thing where you get so stressed out, your blood pressure rises, it gets into your sweat glands and your pores, and you literally start sweating blood. This is what was happening to Jesus. Because he knows, he sees it coming. This is why he's praying. He's like, Lord, take this cup from me. Because his human side is saying, I can't, I can't. This is going to hurt. It's going to be painful. This is going to be so much that I have to go through. I just can't do this. But his God side is saying, no, you have to do this. You have to continue. You know why? Because my church is worth it. So then he gets arrested. He gets arrested and he gets taken before the Sanhedrin in an unlawful midnight uh, court session. And in there, they're questioning him. Are you really the son of God? Jesus says, it is as you say. But are you really, yeah, that's blasphemous. Are you really him? And they bring in false witnesses to say, here are the things that Jesus has done, completely untrue, but they're just straight up lying about it because they want to see Jesus dead because they're tired of what he has done. So then they're like, well, if you're really the Christ, they blindfolded him and they start punching him. And kicking him and saying, if you are the Christ, prophesy who hits you. Just mocking who he says he is, mocking his lordship. And as he's going through it, he remains quiet. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't stop it because he's thinking you are worth it. And then from there, he's taken before Pilate. Pilate couldn't fall, find any fault in him to kill him. Sends him to Herod. Herod's like, there's nothing here. Sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate just says, you know what? Maybe I can just have Jesus beaten. If I have Jesus beaten, maybe they'll calm down and it'll be fine. Because there's no reason to kill him. He hasn't done anything wrong. So he has him beaten. And when they take him out, they take him out to the public square where, where the flogging would take place. And he's handed over to the Romans who are expert at torturing and at killing. They were some of the best that history has ever known. They, they, they know how to do this so much so that when they would whip someone, they knew to only whip someone 39 times because the 40th time that person will die. But 39, they can still live and recover and we can still torture them some more or put them in prison or whatever their next step was. They knew this. This is how precise and, and perfect they were at torturing people to get the most pain possible without killing the person. So these are the people that Jesus was handed over and then he is whipped with the cat of nine tails and, and, and when we think about this, a lot of time when we see in movies or pictures, we, we picture this just whip like Indiana Jones, like, all right, that's all we picture. But when we look at the cat of nine tails, it's nine strands woven in between the strands. You have, you have pieces of bone, you have pieces of glass, uh, you, have, you have sharp rocks woven into it and then at the end you would have a lead ball and that lead ball was so when they would whip the person and when whip Jesus, it would help wrap around their body so they would kind of grab it and then they would rip it off. 
ripping off flesh of Jesus, exposing organs, exposing muscles, possibly bone, depending on where they hit. But with each strike, it's precise. And they just keep hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. And this whole time, he's still Jesus. He's still Jesus. He can say, I'm done. I'm done. Angels, please come down. Stop this. I can't take it anymore. This is too painful, but he doesn't. He continues as they whip and whip and whip because of our sin, because of what he done. He takes it because he says, my people are worth it. They are worth every single bit of it. I am not going to give up on them. Then from there, they take him. They take him back and they continue to mock him. They put a robe on him. After having these open wounds, they put a robe on him so that thing is like sticking to his body. And then they make a, a crown of thorns, and it's not like a little like bush thorns that you may think of. These thorns are like three inches. So they make that and they stick it onto his head, pressing it down into his head, scraping up against his skull, blood dripping, more pain. And then they mock him, calling him the king of the Jews, but you know what? He doesn't stop. My people are worth it. Then he gets taken before the crowd. Because the Romans, they had this thing where the governors would be like, hey, I want you to know that we care about the people that we're ruling. So every year we release one person to you as a good gesture. So with that, they had Barabbas, a notorious thief. And then they had Jesus. And he was thinking, surely they'll, they won't take Barabbas. But no, Jesus is up there, and they're hearing, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. The very people that Jesus is going to the cross for, that is going to is he is hearing them say, no, crucify him. We don't want him. Give us the thief. Man, talk about another great opportunity. Jesus is like, I'm done. These people are ridiculous. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to do this. But no, he hears the insult. He hears them calling for his death, and he just takes it. Because you are worth it. Then from there, then from there they make him carry his own cross. And he is paraded throughout Jerusalem. And carrying, and as he's carrying it, he just goes and, oh, he's already been beaten. He's been up all night, over 24 hours because of the, the, unlawful, uh, the unlawful court that they had. And he is now told to carry his own cross through Jerusalem and he stumbles. And then he gets hit and like, get up finished going. He gets up. He continues to go with everything that he has. He stumbles again. And this is a great time again to give up, but he doesn't. He gets back up. He keeps going. He keeps walking. He tries to go and he falls again. He literally has nothing left. That the Romans see it and they're just like, that's it. And they grab a man named Simon. They say, here, you finish carrying the cross for him. We'll, we'll carry him. So they pick him up. Simon carries a cross, and he's just being dragged between the Roman soldiers and just grab and keep going. And just Jesus quit absolutely not because he's like, I can't because those are my people. I need to continue for them because they are worth it. Jesus refused to give up. Then he gets to Golgotha, and they prepare him for the cross. One of the first things they do is they take that robe that's been on him probably starting to heal up with the wounds, and they rip it off, reopening those wounds again. Just imagine Jesus just screaming, ah, if he had strength. And they do that so they can gamble over it and mock him like, oh, I have the king's clothes. Let's see who's going to win the king's clothes. Just complete disrespect. And then they prepare him for the cross. 
And when he gets up there and, and they bring nine-inch nails, these huge pieces of nails that they come up and they put in between his wrist, in between the two bones, so he'll actually hang up there. So they get to prepare him, and they just take those nails and just drive it into his hands. The pain that he's going through. At any point in time, he can stop it. He is Jesus. He is God. He can stop it, but he doesn't. Because he's thinking of every single one of us. He's thinking of every single church around the globe. He's thinking of the people that he created, that he loves, and he says, I'm going to continue. Then they come to his ankles. He's up there. He's, he's on there. So they pray his ankles. They probably turn him side. They're most likely turn him sideways. And they go in between his ankles with the nail, with both. And if you sprained an ankle before, times and times a thousand. That's what they did. So he's hanging up there at this point, and, and for him to breathe, because being hung like this, and he's kind of hanging down, the only way for him to catch a breath, because it, it messes with his lungs, is for him to pull up on the nails that are in his hands, to push upon those, and in his ankles, to push up, to take a breath. And while this is happening, his back, with those open swords, are just rubbing up against that nasty cross, probably getting more splinters, but that's what he has to do just to breathe. And while he's up there, the people continue to hurl insults at him. They're like, if you're really the son of God, why don't you call your angels? They straight up call him out. They straight up say, Jesus, you say you're him? You say you're him? Do it. I dare you. I dare you to call the angels down. Prove us all wrong. But he doesn't. He stays on that cross. And he sees to it through the end. And he sees through it until his very last breath. And he says, it is finished. And he does it because he can't stop thinking about us. You are worth it. Then he's buried in a tomb. And once he's buried in that tomb, he goes toe to toe with death. And three days later, only one of them is standing, and that is Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior, took care of everything that ever needs to be taken care of. And I thank God every single day that he went through every single bit of that for me and for you. Because without it, where in the world would we be? This is the love of our Savior. That he goes through every single bit of that for us. When every day we say, I got a better plan, God. God, I don't need you. He still says, yeah, you may think that, but you need me more than you know, so I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to go through it. You are worth it. So that verse that we read earlier, Romans chapter 8, should have a whole new meaning for us now. Should have a completely different meaning. Romans 8, chapter 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love the way Paul puts that. His passion, his conviction. He says, I am convinced. There is no doubt in his mind. There's nothing that's ever going to change his mind. He knows for a fact that there is absolutely nothing, not death, not our enemies, not the government, nothing that is ever going to separate us, not even you. There's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. 
Because I'm telling you, if he, if everything he went through didn't come between us and him and his love, there's nothing that's going to happen now that's going to come between us and his love. He already took care of the hard part. All we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is say, okay, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to take care of this. So what's it going to be? Are we going to receive this love, a love that in spite of our sin went through the absolute worst punishment ever created by man just so we can be with him all eternity? Are we going to accept that? Are we going to say, okay, I'm on board? Or are we just going to continue to carry our own burdens and try to figure it out ourselves? We pretty much just presented the gospel. Nothing new was said. It was just what it is. It's the gospel. And it's something that's a mess that isn't just for us. Yes, it pertains a lot to us, but it's not just for us. Everyone needs to know this message, this love, and this hope. So I hope after today you have been encouraged and you're excited and you're ready to give the same message to the people who need it most, the people without hope. Hope you guys have a great week.